Well, good evening. How are you all? You can turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 15. 1 Chronicles chapter 15, we see that David decides to back up and do something the correct way, that he had done the wrong way. And as I think about that, I realize that it is never too late to turn around, go back, and do something properly. One of the fatal flaws that we have as human beings is we approach mistakes as if we can never, ever redeem them or correct them or go back and get it right. It was Thomas Alva Edison who said, I failed my way to success. I think it's very important that you realize you're going to make mistakes. It's a very human thing. We understand that some mistakes are honest mistakes, some mistakes are sin, but all mistakes really come down to our our human nature. We sometimes, as much as we try to do things right, we don't always get it right. And sometimes we do the wrong thing knowing it's the wrong thing. We're going to see in David's case, he just didn't ask the question. And as a result of him not having all of the information he needed, he made a mistake But now in chapter 15, he corrects that mistake, and he does it wonderfully. And so as we get into the study this evening, I want you, all of us this evening, to think about areas that we've maybe gotten it wrong in the past. Look at your life and realize it is not too late to turn it around. It is not too late to go back and say, you know, Lord, for the last 20, 30, 40 years, I've done it the wrong way. I've gotten it wrong. But as of today, I'm going to look into your word and follow your direction I'm going to do this right. I'm going to do this in a way that brings you glory and honor and live my life in obedience to you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We understand that your word guides us and leads us and directs us and helps us to see the truth and to know what the truth is. Lord, as we read your word and we recognize your direction through the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives, we also recognize that There is a way that seems right to a man or to a woman, but the end thereof is death and destruction. We understand that when we do things in our own strength and according to our own wisdom and will, that we oftentimes end up just making things worse, compounding problems, defying you. But Lord God, when we submit our hearts to you and ask for your direction, you you guide us with your eye, you lead us. And you bring us to the place you've called us to be for your glory. That is our heart this evening as we come to you. May you guide us and lead us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're going to see in chapter 15, that David and the men of Israel correctly moved the ark of God to Jerusalem. You'll remember back in a previous study, in chapter 13, we had studied a little bit of this that David had tried to move the ark. He had placed the ark as a result of moving it incorrectly. He had placed the ark in the house of Obed-Edom, who was a Gittite, a Levite, and it had been there for the last three months, according to chapter 13, verse 14. And David was encouraged to move the ark after he heard that the Lord had blessed this man, Obed-Edom. So the ark is in his home, and God is blessing him. But you see, David had since inquired of the Lord. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15, it says, After David had constructed buildings for himself in the city of David, he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. 
And then David said, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. We're seeing now that God had spoken to David. David had asked for direction and he had received it. David at this point had sought the Lord as to find out the proper way to move the ark. He had finished construction on his palace, his palace of cedar in the city of Jerusalem, and he almost felt guilty or convicted that he's living in this beautiful palace and that the ark of God is in a tent. So he prepared a place, he pitched a tent for the house of the Lord, for for a place where the ark of God could be in Jerusalem. Now David had finished this construction, he had prepared this place, but he now understood something, that only the Levites were called to carry the ark of God. The Lord had chosen them to carry the ark when it needed to be moved. The Lord had chosen them to minister before him forever. This is something he didn't understand the last time he tried to move it. Now, what David did, and I'll read the whole section here, he assembled all Israel to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom. Let's read from verses 3 to verse 24. David assembled all Israel in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to the place he had prepared for it, and he called together the descendants of Aaron and the Levites. From the descendants of Kohath, Uriel the leader, and 120 of his relatives. From the descendants of Merari, Asaiah the leader, and 220 relatives. And from the descendants of Gershon, Joel the leader, and 130 relatives. And from the descendants of Elisaphan, Shemaiah the leader, and 200 of, of his relatives. And finally, from the descendants of Hebron, Alel, or Eliel, the leader, and 80 of his relatives. And the descendants of Uziel, Aminadab, the leader, and 112 relatives. So all of these individuals are, are the Levites. They're responsible to move the ark, according to the different clans. Then David summoned Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and Uriel, and it goes on to list these names I'm not going to mention, the other Levites. And he said to them, you are the heads of the Levitical families, you and your fellow Levitic Levites, are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the, pre- in the, in the, in the prescribed way. So, the priests... And Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders, as Moses had commanded, in accordance with the word of the Lord. David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers, to sing joyful songs accompanied by musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. Just want to point out all stringed instruments and percussion, which some people feel is inappropriate in church. Well, it's biblical. So the Levites appointed Himon, son of Joel, and from his brothers Asaph, son of Berechiah, and from their brothers the Merarites, Ethan, it goes on to mention all of their brothers and all of the Levites. They were the gatekeepers and the musicians. Heman, Asaph, and Ethan were to sound the bronze cymbals in verse 19. Then it goes on to list more Levites who were to play the lyres according to Alamoth, which is a musical term that we're not familiar with. 
And then it lists some more uh, Levites, including Obed-Edom, uh, who are to play the harps, directing according to Sheminith, which is, again, another musical term that we don't know how to interpret. But Kenaniah, the head Levite, was in charge of the singing. That was his responsibility because he was skillful at it. And Barakiah, Elkanah, were to be doorkeepers for the ark. and lists a number of different priests who were to uh, blow the trumpets before the ark of God. Nobody eat them, and Jehiah were also to be doorkeepers for the ark. So David has set this whole thing up. A lot of details, but we know that David assembled all Israel to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom. The thing I'm struck by, <coughs> the thing I'm struck by is that he was so careful to follow God's word. And that is so important that we, when we're looking to do something for God, or we're looking to serve God, that we don't make the mistake of doing something with our hearts and not consulting the word of God. I know a lot of people that serve with their hearts but not with their heads. They make really bad mistakes because they're given over to their emotions and their sentimentality. But they're not seeking the word of God. I have found that if you really have a question about your life and you go to the principles of God's word, and may I recommend Proverbs if you're looking for really solid principles, if you're looking for God to lead you, he will show you. I can remember times reading through the Psalms where I was going through things, and just as I read through them, I, I received direction. I received God's wisdom and understanding to be able to make better decisions than I would have been able to make if I made them alone. It's amazing. When you stop and ask God for direction, you actually do receive it. But how many times have we just ventured out to do something without asking God whether we should do it, when we should do it, or how we should do it? So <clears throat> what we find here, first David assembled everyone. He brought them together in the city of Jerusalem to move the ark, but most of them were spectators. He called the descendants of Aaron and the Levites to bring the ark to Jerusalem. We see them all listed there in verses 5 through 10. But then he gets the priests involved, Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and the six leaders of the Levites. He goes to those who had the responsibility for the house of the Lord, and he delegates this responsibility to them, for they really truly were the ones who were called to do this ministry, to move the ark, and to be involved in all things concerning worship. David had taken it upon himself in the past, and it ended disastrously. First, he told them to consecrate themselves in order to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Now, let's talk about consecration. In verses 11 and 12, we're told that they were to be consecrated. What does that mean? Perfect? No. No man, no woman is perfect. Consecration is a surrender of your heart and a willingness to follow God. That's all it really is. It really means set apart. It means you've taken your life and you said, you know what, I'm going to live my life for God. So I'm going to take my life and consecrate it to God, give it to God, surrender my heart to God. You can't do a single thing in the kingdom of God if you're not consecrated. You realize that? There are so many well-meaning people, pastors, leaders, who do quote-unquote, large and wonderful, albeit fleshly, works for God that are not consecrated to God. And sometimes we try to do the work of the Holy Spirit without being consecrated to God. Can't be done. 
If you're not surrendered to God, you can't serve God. I know that's a very harsh statement, but it's still true. David understood this. The Word of God made it clear. The priests had to be consecrated to God. It didn't mean they were perfect. It didn't mean they did everything right. It meant that their hearts were in an attitude of surrender and submission to God and to His Word. If you approach things like that, God will work mightily in and through you. It will happen. And when you don't know which way to go, whether to turn to the right or the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. But that doesn't happen unless you're consecrated to God, unless you surrender to God. What does it look like? Well, you're thinking maybe I should go on a missions trip, and you come up with 11 reasons for why you should go and 10 reasons for why you shouldn't. And you make a decision to go because there were 11 reasons you should and 10 you shouldn't. You figure, well, there were more reasons why I should go than not. And I've seen people go on mission trips with that kind of thinking, and it's a disaster. There could be a hundred reasons why you, in your mind, shouldn't go. But if God has called you to go, a consecrated person goes by faith. It's not a matter of being rational. It's not a matter of weighing the odds. It's a matter of being submitted to God. And a person who's consecrated says these words like Isaiah, Here I am, Lord. Send me. That's simply put what it means to be consecrated to God. Oh, pastor, I haven't consecrated my life. Really, why? Why have you not consecrated your life to God? What is it that's standing in the way from you simply saying, Lord, where you go, I will follow, you know? Where you lead me, I will follow. Where you direct me, I'll go. I may not always want to go, but I'll go because I trust in you. That's what it means. And sometimes it's the difficult things we have to do. The decisions we have to make and the relationships we have to break off. Or our willingness to do the difficult things when those difficult things are so challenging we'd rather not do them. Consecration is a state of the heart. It is a heart that is simply surrendered to God. And he's even honest in saying, I don't even want to be consecrated Because I love you, because I trust you, help my unbelief. Help me to submit my heart to you, even when, maybe especially when I don't want to. I remember a prayer a friend of mine mentioned at a men's group many, many years ago, before I was married, probably like 86. He prayed, Lord, give me the desire to have the desire to obey you. That's real accurate. If you're honest with yourself, you probably don't even have the desire half the time. A consecrated person simply offers their life to God. That was the first step. But then they had to acknowledge their mistakes. One of the most damaging things in relationship with someone else or with God is to not acknowledge your faults. To not acknowledge when you got it wrong. Is it the end of the world to say, you know, I blew it? I got involved in this thing. I didn't ask God. I I was out there doing this thing. And, you know, I never even stopped to say, you know, does God want me to do this? Did I ask God how to do this? I got involved in this relationship because I wanted it to be God, but it wasn't God. I never stopped to ask him if it was him. Because it checked all the boxes in my life. I just did it because I wanted it. I, I wanted to buy this thing and... 
I never stopped to say, Lord, do you want me to take your money that you blessed me with and spend it on this expensive thing? So many times we could avoid problems in our lives if we simply ask God for directions. Have you ever, I mean, this almost never happens anymore because we have these wonderful apps. But I do remember a time where if you were going to someone's house, they either had to give you directions or you needed to look at a paper map. And many times you got lost. And you'd have to stop at a gas station. And you'd have to ask for directions. I know that's a cardinal sin for men. We assume we have the ability to find ourselves through a storm like a homing pigeon. That we were born with this innate ability to find our way to a place we've never been or we've never been before. But brave and humble is the man or woman who stops and asks for directions and says, you know, I don't know where I'm going and I am lost and I need help. Today we go through navigation. For a while there it was MapQuest, remember that? You go on MapQuest or Google Maps and you print out a piece of paper and you would bring that in the car. I'm showing my age now. But nowadays you either have some type of navigation in the car, like I have OnStar, it's wonderful, it talks to me. Or you have a phone app, right, that distracts you so that when you're driving, you cut me off on the highway. But I say this, asking for directions is not a sin. And asking God for directions is essential. You're not going to get there any other way. But you have to start by acknowledging you're lost. You have to start by acknowledging you need help. And left to your own devices, you're going to get it wrong. David got it wrong. Let's recap. He had tried to move the ark. They had incorrectly moved the ark three months earlier. It was a complete and total disaster. I mean, literally a tragedy. Simply because he didn't stop and ask for direction. That is, ask the Lord. The Israelites had used a new cart. Sounds like a good idea, right? They used a new cart to move the ark to Jerusalem. In fact, there were two individuals the sons of Abinadab, Uzzah and Ahio, who were guiding the new cart, which was being pulled by oxen. If they had stopped and asked for directions, they would have known what David already told us, that he learned later on that the Levites were supposed to carry it. But he didn't know that because he didn't ask. They didn't have the four Levites carry it on their shoulders with poles. According to Exodus 25, that was the way they were supposed to do it. They didn't even cover the ark when they moved it, which they were supposed to do. And inadvertently, Uzzah touched it. And the Lord struck this man down when he sort of casually touched the ark. We looked at this recently here on Wednesday evenings. And this was because they did not inquire of the Lord to find out the proper way to move the ark. Now, let me just encourage you. You may be a little convicted, but let me encourage you. You're here on a Wednesday night, and you're in the right place. Because God can direct you as you study his word. You may not even be looking for direction, but God is challenging you even now to think about some decisions you're about to make. Maybe you're thinking about taking a job, and you're trying to figure that out. Maybe you're thinking about uh, going to a new school or a career change, things with family, friends, loaning people money. Anytime anyone says, well, you know, I'm praying about loaning somebody money, I said, here's the simple wisdom I can give you from the book of Proverbs. Don't do it. 
Well, pastor, you know, we're supposed to... Absolutely, be generous. In fact, give them the money. Well, I don't want... Well, then you shouldn't lend it to them. Because if you're not willing to say goodbye to that money, you shouldn't lend it. I'm not saying you should quote Hamlet, but Shakespeare said it this way, neither a lender nor a borrower be. It is so important that you understand you are not to be in the business of banking, right? But giving... And I have given people money, and I have blessed people, and the church has certainly blessed people over the years. And it's with the spirit of if it comes back, it comes back. Cast your bread on the water, right? If it comes back to you, great. And many times the money comes back. There have been times where it hasn't, to be honest. And it's okay. I learned that lesson early on when someone asked me to borrow $60. I was a new Christian, probably three to four months in the Lord. You can tell I haven't forgiven them because I still remember the amount. And I bring it up whenever I have the opportunity. But it was $60, and the person asked, and I was a Christian, so of course I gave it to him. Wrote a check, cashed the check, and I never saw that money again. And when I pushed for that money, I got a check that bounced. Now I'm out $70. Because at that time, you got a $10 charge. It's a lot more now, I think, for bouncing a check. So now I need $70. Never got that money back. And I remember just having bitterness in my heart. And I told somebody, told a a ministry leader. I was in a worship team and the worship leader and I were talking. I said, I have bitterness in my heart. I'm going to tell you. And he told him what happened. And I said, because the person didn't pay me back, I don't know what to do with it. He said, first of all, anytime you lend people money or give them money, accept the fact that it may not come back to you. And if it doesn't come back to you, you gave it to God. You gave it to the Lord. Don't carry that around with you the rest of your life. Secondly, if you had asked me, he borrowed 300 from me and never paid it back. Same person. And he said, this is why sometimes Christians don't talk about things because they don't want to gossip, but there is a time where you need to share information. Because there are people in the church that will go around doing things like this and taking advantage of people. So if you're praying about helping somebody in some way, can I just encourage you? Definitely pray about it. But if you're going to bless them and give them anything, say goodbye to it. If it comes back to you, great. If you're thinking about making a major life change or getting involved in some kind of a relationship, and, and the reasons for doing it are because, well, I told the Lord that I'm lonely, and then this person came along. If that's your logic, if that's your reasoning, you might not want to do it. You might not want to get involved. Look for God's confirmation. I have to say, my wife and I, we always look for God's confirmation in our purchases, major purchases, whether it was our home or when we moved into our apartment, even our cars. We look for God to confirm that he's with us. And I can tell you, my car purchases have all been wonderful experiences. Relationships have been built, and I felt really good about them, even our our home, because I felt God walking with us. You know, when you're spending tens of thousands of dollars, or in case of a home, hundreds of thousands of dollars, it better be a good experience. But it's not going to be if you don't seek God. So I don't know what you're going through. I've mentioned a couple of possibilities, and maybe God will take them and apply them to your heart. But whatever it is you're going through, take a moment and ask the question, because David didn't and someone died. Someone died. That's pretty serious. That's pretty tragic. So now they consecrated themselves in order to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And they correctly moved the ark according to the word of the Lord. And David and the leaders of the Levites 
appointed singers and musicians to accompany the ark. They're doing this properly. He told them to have the singers sing joyfully. By the way, we should always sing joyfully. Do you know that when you're singing even a sad song, you can sing with a degree of joy of the Lord in the Lord? You can. There should always be joy in our hearts when we're singing to God. In this case, they were accompanied by the lyres, harps, and cymbals. And I only pointed that out because as a musician, I've heard, I was going to use a word I shouldn't have used. I've heard ignorant people say that there are only certain sanctified instruments. The piano, the organ, that the other instruments are not sanctified. Like harpsichord, organ, and piano. But anyone who studied music, as I have, can tell you that a piano, even a harpsichord, really is a stringed instrument. It's just how you pluck the strings. Okay, an organ isn't, but it's a keyboard. But... So what's the difference if you sit at the piano and hit little hammers that hit strings, or you pick up a guitar and pluck them with a pick? How is one sanctified and the other not? And then they'll say, well, drums are no good. That's way too Pentecostal. People might get excited in worship. They might actually enjoy themselves. We can't have that. People might, they might move a little in their seat. I've heard people, you think I'm getting, I've heard people say this. I've shared this before. I went to a seminar. Michelle and I, we left early because when the guy got up and said, sanctified music always emphasizes the one and the three. If you're a musician, you know what I'm talking about. Unsanctified music, devilish music, emphasizes the two and the four. So like, for example, two and the four be one. Devilish. But if you were to totally sanctified. When he said that, we were out of there. Where do people come up with this stuff? In fact, Psalms, the book of Psalms, the word Psalms means to sing with a plucked instrument, a stringed instrument. There is so much ignorance in the world, but in the church. Don't let anybody tell you. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord means if you got a tambourine, fine. If you've got a stringed instrument, fine. If you've got a piano, fine. If you've got a zither, use it. You know what a zither is? Now, you wouldn't know what a zither is. Neither do I right now. It's a stringed instrument. You know, there are a lot of things. I've, I've worked with so many musicians over the years. One time in New York City, I met a, a Greek man by the name of Dionysus. I, that's redundant. Why would I have to say he's Greek? Right, Jim? If his name was Dionysus. And he played the bazooki. It's a Greek stringed instrument. And we led worship with the bazooki. It only happened once or twice, but it was an enjoyable experience. Some of you have seen me up here. I sometimes play the five-string bluegrass banjo. You can worship to a bluegrass banjo. It's a little pet peeve of mine. But look at what happens when they simply worship joyfully. They're singing using the instruments they have. Why, oh why, do we impose upon the Word of God things that aren't there? Because we're not asking for direction. We're approaching God with preconceived notions and wanting God to approve of our way of doing things. Don't you dare do that. You'll miss out on God's best. Amen? And we all know guitars are great, so we'll move on. Okay. So there they are, singers, musicians, even doorkeepers. Now, what do doorkeepers do? They're the ones guiding and directing everybody, crowd control, if you will. Everyone's working together as they worship God. And then, 
They bring the ark to Jerusalem. Let's look at verses 25 through 28. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of units of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord, Jehovah, from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. Because God had helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. Now David was clothed in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, and as were the singers. And Kenaniah, who was in charge of the singing of the choirs, David also wore a linen ephod. And so all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord, Jehovah, with shouts. Yeah, you can shout in church too. With the sounding of ram's horns and trumpets. Yeah, trumpets. And of cymbals and the playing of lyres and harps. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David... Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. We'll talk more about that. Let's back up a minute. They are all rejoicing, all rejoicing as they move the ark to Jerusalem. Four Levites carried on their shoulders with poles, covering it before they moved it, never touched it, all according to God's direction. They offered sacrifices to the Lord as they moved the ark to Jerusalem. Why is it important to worship the Lord with sacrifice? Well, David answered that question at one point, and we'll get to it eventually. We don't offer to the Lord that which costs us nothing. We don't offer to the Lord that which costs us nothing. If serving God doesn't require a sacrifice on your part, If it doesn't cost you anything, is it really worship? Now, what do I mean? I'm not saying it has to cost you your life. But let's just take it for a minute and and let's, and let's think about it. Is serving God always convenient? Clearly not. In fact, most of the time it isn't. I've had people say to me, well, pastor, I'd come to your church, but you have a nine o'clock service and that's way too early for me. Really? I wonder how people feel in China huddled together in a basement worshiping God whenever they can, whenever the authorities aren't looking. Might be four o'clock in the morning. I have a little pet peeve about that too. Because I think we approach things in America in our culture today. You see a large church. They offer services every 45 minutes, every hour. You know, well, I can't decide whether to go to the 1114 service or the 1206 service. Really? Really? You know, I mean, I really hope serving the Lord is convenient for you. We're going to make it as convenient as possible. And that's what a lot of churches think. I've learned that when it costs you something to serve God, you actually worship God. When you have to struggle, and I'm not saying we want to go out of our way to make it more difficult, but when it costs you something, when your giving costs you something, when your serving costs you something, You appreciate that the sacrifice was made out of your love for God. It draws you closer to God. And that's why I'm not such a big fan of making everything so wonderfully convenient, because I think convenience breeds familiarity and contempt for God. I I think it reduces our reverence for God. Again, we're not going to go out of our way to make it difficult. But it's never easy to serve God. 
It's never easy to honor God in this world. So I look at this and I think <clears throat> sacrifice was an important part of what they were doing. In fact, we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 6, they sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf after the Levites had taken just six steps. Talk about getting to a, off to a good start. They recognized before they went further than just a few feet, they needed to sacrifice to God. <coughs> and they sacrificed a total of seven bulls and seven rams. Now David and all the Levites and singers were clothed in robes of fine linen. And David did something humble. He danced. He danced. Now listen, I'll be the first one to say that I've been to some churches where things get a little out of control. I, I really honestly don't want to be in a church with people running up and down the aisles, dancing and being distracting. But I think sometimes our worship of God is hindered when it doesn't need to be. I mentioned drums, a beat. You know, if you move in your seat a little bit, it, it, it's not dishonoring to God. If you, if you start jumping around and distracting people from worship, it might be, but it's not what David was doing. David was dancing, humbly dancing, humbly dancing. You see, there's a difference. I've been to weddings where someone gets out on the dance floor and there's nothing humble about their dancing. Have you ever been to a wedding and Billie Jean comes on by Michael Jackson? Dun, 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 dun. And some guy comes out from the side. He has the hat. He has the glove. He's been prepared. He's been working all year on this. And, and the guy nails it. And I think to myself, man, that's awesome. I wish I could dance like that. That's not humble dancing. Humble dancing is just pouring yourself out before the Lord. Maybe it expresses itself in movement. Not everyone feels this way. Maybe it simply expresses itself in the lifting of hands or the bowing of your head or your heart. Is it okay for worship to be emotional, I guess, is my question. I hope so. But it should always be humble. If what you're doing in church brings attention to you, there's nothing humble about it. David was humble. He danced before the Lord. It says he did this with all his might. This is how David, a man of passion, expressed his love for God. And I've known dancers and people who, when they move, they're really expressing their heart for God. When I went to Cuba back in 2004, we were in Havana, and I had never seen dancing in church. I knew it existed, but I'd never seen it. And we were in this little church right outside the city, and we just got there, or just had gotten there, and uh, I was supposed to speak through an interpreter. I had never done that before. And Pastor Joe said, okay, you're up. But before I went up, these two or three women came out in white robes, and they did this sort of dance. It was kind of like a movement thing. It wasn't very distracting. It was actually quite beautiful. And they just sort of moved. It was like their hands were outreached. They were praising God, and they were doing it to music. And they were worshiping the God, the God we serve through dancing. And it was the first time I'd ever seen it. It was a very beautiful experience. And then I got up to speak, and, and it, was, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. My only problem was I had never spoken through an interpreter, so my timing was all off. If you've never done this, like, it's really hard, okay? That's what motivated me to learn Spanish. I didn't want to use an interpreter anymore. It was so hard. And when I was, after 20 minutes, I just lost my mind. And I said to Pastor Joe, uh, uh, okay, so I'm done. And Joe goes, who's 20 minutes? You were supposed to do 45. I'm like, I can't. I don't know how to do this. Sal and I were on that missions trip together. We went back to the hotel room because I was supposed to do a whole pastor's conference. 
we got on our knees and he prayed for me and we just prayed that God would give me the ability to do the impossible, which at that time was impossible. And I taught for three days and it was fine. But I had to get to a place where I was humble. And I had to get to a place where I cried out to God. But I've never forgotten that dancing that I saw. And I've seen it since. And it's quite beautiful. So I just want to point that out. I'm not saying we're going to suddenly have a dance team here at Calvary Chapel. I'm just saying that there's room in the kingdom of God for dancing humbly, humbly before the Lord. Amen? It says he did it with all his might. And they shouted to the sound of music as they moved the ark to Jerusalem. Now the shout, screaming is never enjoyable, but shouting, the idea is loud praise, expressing your love for God in a very exuberant way. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with it at all. I've heard people say that it's, you know, ungodly to be so uncouth in church. I don't think so. David didn't think so. The Israelites didn't think so. But David's wife, she had a problem with this. David's wife, Michal, despised him. She despised him for humbly leaping and dancing before the Lord. Now, we'll see. This will come up in next week's study. But she was... Is a difficult situation. David had married her. Then he was banished from the kingdom. And Saul gave her to another man. And then when David became king of all Israel, mostly because he was proud and he was insulted by the fact that they took her away, he wanted her back as his wife. You can imagine that had all kinds of problems associated with it at that point. It was a disaster. But he did it for the wrong reasons. And so she's looking for a reason anyway. She's probably despising him in her heart already. And then he goes and does something like this. She takes advantage of the opportunity to really despise him and call him out for it, as we'll see later on. She was embarrassed by him for his public devotion. She second-guessed his motives. I imagine her sitting there saying, what a showboat. What a narcissist. Look at this guy bringing attention to himself. That wasn't David's heart at all, but that's how she felt. She was jealous of his behavior. She felt that it was vulgar and unbecoming of a king. It embarrassed her. But she was already in a bad place. But David then goes on, and we'll just look at the first six verses of the next chapter. He goes on to reestablish sacrificial worship at the tent in Jerusalem. He was very concerned that as a kingdom they were worshiping God according to his word, especially now that he had made so many corrections. In verses 1 through 6, we read, They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. Burnt offerings were consecration offerings, which were completely consumed on the altar. Fellowship offerings were peace offerings, uh, which were, they consumed the part of the animal that you wouldn't eat, and the parts that you would eat were given to the people. The idea is you had fellowship with God. God would receive part of the animal, you would receive the rest, and you were having fellowship, a meal with God. It says in verse 2 that after David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each Israelite man and woman. And he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to make petition, that is to pray. To give thanks and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief. 
Zechariah second, and it goes on to list again all of the different Levites. They were to play the lyres and harps, and Asaph was to sound the cymbals, and Benaniah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Again, just to stress, every major type of instrument is represented there. It's not about what instrument you use. You can sing and praise the Lord. You can play and praise the Lord. It's your heart before God. Are you consecrated to God? David was. Not a perfect man, but he was consecrated. We know this. God said of him, he's a man after my own heart. You can't be a man or a woman after God's heart if you're not consecrated to God. And so, here they were. Here he is, blessing the people, providing for them. Don't we love it when our leaders provide for us? Bless us? As opposed to reaching into our pockets and taking from us? He provided food for all the people in the crowd and sent them home. He was concerned as a leader. He was concerned for his people. We see very little of that anymore in our culture, especially in our country. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the Ark of the Lord in Jerusalem. Look at their ministry and tell me, is there a need for this ministry today? They were called to pray to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, and praise the Lord. What a valuable ministry. That's why we spend so much of our time when we come together doing those things. In prayer, in thanksgiving, giving thanks to God and praising God in our worship. And David instructed the Levites on how to regularly praise the Lord before the ark. He was a worshiper of God. Are we worshipers of God? Are we? We've seen what it means to be a worshiper of God. We've looked at all the different points this evening, one of them, of course, being consecrated, but also asking God for direction, humbly expressing ourselves before the Lord, making ourselves available to him. I want to encourage you to be like David in that regard. Be a man or a woman after his heart. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word your grace and your mercy. May we continue to be worshipers, worshiping you in spirit and in truth, according to your leading, for your glory. May we consecrate our hearts to you in sincere worship, and may the expression of our hearts be that of prayer, thanksgiving, and praise. May we be willing to make the sacrifices necessary the ones that you call us to make, to please you and to honor you. May we live our lives for you and for others as you lead us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.